Hello and welcome everyone to this ESIP webinar about trade and technology. My name is Oscar Gini, I'm an economist at ESIP and I will be your host today. And I'm very pleased to have Lucian Sarnat as my guest. Lucian is the head of unit for Global Regulatory Cooperation and International Procurement Negotiations at DG Trade in the European Commission. And prior to his current post, Lucian led DG Trade Chief Economist Unit for over a decade. Before joining the European Commission, Lucien held several positions at the United Nations and he has authored more than 20 publications on trade and competition policy. Lucien and I will be talking for the next 45 minutes about a paper that Lucien published with us titled We Need to Talk Trade and Technology. And trade and technology will be the topic of our conversation today. So Lucien, welcome. Thank you, Oscar. Hello, everyone. Okay, so let's go straight to the topic. Let's talk about trade and technology. First, give us a summary of the paper and tell us why is this important. Right, well, it's a short paper and I think it started from my acute sense that probably we are now at an acute uh, critical juncture in trade policy making with regard to recent important and most likely disruptive technological trends. If you notice, the paper starts by bringing this interesting uh, feature of new business realities, most likely redefining some critical, uh, very important industrial sectors. So you have, for instance, major software companies or IT or telecom companies announcing that they will start producing cars. On the other hand, we have major car companies like Volkswagen announcing that they will become software companies. So this, to me, it illustrates very clearly that for the business community, at least, the dividing lines between companies specialized primarily in software or those specialized in more traditional industrial sectors is getting blurred to the point that they have to be competitive in, in, in many areas they were not primarily interested. So nowadays, we're talking of a, a continuum of trading goods and services. So I think that's the first point of the paper. That brings me to the second more analytical aspect I wanted to highlight is the fact that if you go beyond this business phenomenon, this anecdotal evidence, you will see that when you look at trade statistics, that services and goods trade are also really at macro level subject to major transformations. Well, it turns out that EU exports more services than goods. For many people, including for prominent journalists, this was a bit of a surprise. Moreover, within goods, there is a growing share of embedded services, uh, which nowadays uh, some people call mode five services. This is a growing trend even within the area of traditional goods exports. So there is something we can see very clearly in the business community. We see it very clearly at macro level in, in trade statistics and recent ones. And we will probably see it even more clearly in post-COVID trade statistics. We will have to wait a bit for that, but I, I'm pretty sure there will be significant structural changes in, in these statistics. And the third point that the paper tries to put forward is the fact that we are actually in front of a myriad of trade rules that apply to global trade. And they were written at a time when this kind of technology trends did not exist. And moreover, the, there was, I think, a much bigger difference between goods and services, which nowadays, as I said, are increasingly blurred. Whereas unlike the business realities, 
trade rules are actually in disconnected silos. So we have the uh, gap rule for goods. We have the gas rules for services. Of course, somewhere in between, we have trips, which is very relevant for technology. And we also have other agreements like the custom valuation agreement where these elements come nowadays somehow in a, in a very interesting way to the fore of our trade policy thinking. So trade rules were not always written with emerging technologies in mind. So this is one of the conclusions of the paper. And when it comes to solutions, I don't have, there's nothing revolutionary. I basically argue, I try to advocate that we could probably try to fix these problems using either unilateral, bilateral, or multilateral regulatory cooperation. And this is something perhaps we would come back to it later on. Regulatory cooperation would be extremely important for us to navigate this complex interaction between trend and technology. That's a, that's very good. And let me kind of pick up on one of your points. I mean, you, you, can, you say on, on your paper that these trade rules were, were written in the 1990s. And they are no longer up to date. But can you can you explain a bit more why is that the case, and what can be done to make these rules, these trade rules, up to the task? Yes. Well, I just gave you a quick summary of the paper. But what I was trying to trigger with my paper, and I hope this is actually also the kind of conversation we'll have in the future, is something a bit deeper than that. I think we really need to unpack at a, a more profound level the complex interactions between trade and technology. Just to give you an example, I think we're talking about three important key elements that interact with each other in, in very complex, mutually reinforcing ways. So we have business realities. I just gave you some example of companies who will reinvent themselves using perhaps new technologies. Uh, then we have a second area, which is trade policy making per se. So trade policymakers need to understand technology in order to interact with it and promote it, get the most out of it. And then we have technology itself. I mean, technology happens in specific ecosystems and that you need to understand it as well in order to position yourself vis-a-vis -vis new technological leaders and global players. But if you first imagine yourself as being a global business, imagine, Oscar, you're the CEO of a major company that is engaged in, in global trade. I mean, for you, the kind of the people I would call the real world traders, for you, and there are thousands of companies that can be, you know, exporters, importers, interiors, banks, freight forwarders, wholesalers, shipping companies, that's a whole range of people who depend on a well-functioning global trading system. And for these people, time is money. One extra day wasted somewhere in the wrong place, in the wrong court, on the wrong end of, the, of a ship or in a, in, a, in a warehouse can cost you dearly. So if new tech can help you navigate time in a more effective, in a more cost-effective manner, you would probably jump on that technology tomorrow. Therefore, technology often defines your firm's competitiveness. So that's one way of looking at trade and technology from the perspective of real-world traders. But then, now, change your tie, Oscar, and try to put a more sort of public servant kind of tie, and you are now a trade policymaker. If you imagine a trade policymaker, there's one quality that you absolutely must possess, and that is patience. I think trade policymakers are probably the most patient people on earth. No wonder that some trade officials reinvent themselves as yoga instructors somewhere along their career, because you have to be patient. Look at how long it takes for some of our new initiatives to actually materialize, you know. The last successful multilateral round in Geneva was concluded more than 25 years ago. 
Well, you may think multilateralism is difficult because of its nature. Many players, many countries, they need to agree. Take bilateralism. I mean, if even for an FTA, the recent FTA is needed more than five years to be negotiated. So basically, a trade commissioner has little chance to conclude an FTA launch by himself or herself. You conclude someone else's FTAs. And so this is a key element, I think, in the relationship between technology and policymakers. The influence that trade policymakers can have on technology is rather limited because we're slow. We have a very slow pace of putting new rules in place. 20 years, imagine what happened technologically speaking. In 20 years, since the Uber Iran, or since the WTO launched the work program on e-commerce in 1998, that work program probably was written in Word Perfect or on a monochrome computer screen. Nowadays, we are talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about blockchain, Internet of Things. So I think this is, this is where we would need to find a better way to engage with technology as trade policymakers. Absolutely. Because, you know, we have plenty of new technologies and they are more and more established. 3D printing, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, e-health, blockchain, big data, and so on and so forth. And the application of these technologies is evident and we all benefit from it. But trade, and, and they will go very fast, but trade rules are more static. So my, I suppose my question is, what can trade policy rules do to be in sync or to accommodate these fast changing technologies and, and to enable countries to make them the best out of them? Yeah, in fact, this is the third element in the complex interaction between trade and technology. If Trade policy makers have little influence on major technological disruption because of speed and other complex interactions. The opposite is not true. In fact, technology has great potential for trade policy makers to do a better job uh, for us to facilitate trade. So trying to adopt new technology as part of trade policy making, in particular in terms of enforcement and implementation of existing rules, if not in order to create new rules, I think it's, it's paramount. This is the best thing that a progressive trade policy agenda making can actually do for your competitiveness. And you mentioned a few technologies that are clearly nowadays on the verge of becoming dominant or disruptive for, for trade policy. I mean, we had the container, fair enough. It was probably the, the container was the best trade policy negotiator, the trade, the best trade negotiator on earth, because the amount of trade created by containers, no trade negotiator could match that, no matter how many FTAs you put in place. But there are other new technologies now that can bring similar advantages. So blockchain is, is one of them, but also artificial intelligence. For instance, there is a, I learned recently about the Dutch customs who, in collaboration with IBM, apparently, they're trying to put in place an, an AI system, an artificial intelligence system that would track the millions of uh, small parcels nowadays we are you know we have e-commerce and that's very difficult to to track for custom official but they they have in place a web crawling system that would give you an idea about what is the fair price for a product and then they will match those prices with hs code so you have a market-driven custom valuation tool which is essential for custom officials to do their job because they can actually spot irregularities they can spot all sorts of things that may be in, in compliant with with custom rules so these are the kind of technologies that we as trade policy makers in my personal view 
should be very much open to it. And since I personal use, maybe this is something I should have said from the very, very beginning. Everything I, I would say today here, these are personal views. These are my, my opinions subject to, I mean, it's of an evolving nature. Technology is so fascinating that I'm not claiming I have all the, the right answers. In fact, I have more questions than answers. Absolutely. So these technologies are valuable, but what is the value on these technologies? Uh, my understanding is that in many of these new technologies that you quote in your paper, like 3D printing, as, as you said, cars, which you describe as computers and wheels, the value is not in the ink or the sensor, but in the design, the code, the software to make the whole thing work. So my question is, how does trade policy adjust to the fact that an increasing proportion of the value of the goods and services that we trade is based on intangibles? And what can trade policy do to promote and protect this trade in ideas, this trade in research and in knowledge? Yeah, that's actually, I think, a $50 billion question, Oscar. It, it, it is true that nowadays, as I said, if you look at the way in which companies operate, uh, very often the, the competitiveness edge of a product, of a particular product, doesn't come necessarily from the material characteristics of that product. Uh, you can use the same quality of your plastic, you can use the same type of wires. At the end of the day, if I'm going to choose one product over another, it's either because of its superior design, maybe it's superior uh, functionalities, and they come from services. Maybe it's superior engineering. Maybe it's superior, as I said, um, echo functionalities. Maybe it consumes less. Maybe it's climate friendly. There are many reasons that stem from these added services, what I nowadays call Mod 5 services, and I'm not the only one to, to, to refer to them as such. But I think this is only one part of the story because it, at the end of the day, we have many ways in which you can trade services. So luckily for most of the digital services, we don't have the traditional trade barriers. We may have other emerging barriers, but we can still trade in ideas. You know, if you put something on GitHub or anywhere else, this is the fascinating, and I think this, this is the innovation, the technology diffusion aspect of the internet revolution. But again, coming back to what trade policymakers can do, there's really not much we can do and probably we should stay out of the way for such technologies to flourish as much as we can, unless there are undesirable social side effects. But there is more to it. I think we can take a more proactive role in adopting these technologies or looking around and say, wait a second, can we as trade policymakers adopt and borrow? Can we actually innovate based on the existing technologies, our own core business, the way we do policy, the way we implement trade policy? And I have a very good example for you today and for our audience, something I put forward a, a couple of years ago in a paper I called Trade Policy 2.0. So you have Industry 4.0, but in trade policy, we are not yet at uh, 4.0. We are probably still at 2.0 in, in a way. And I'll, I'll give you one example from the business community. If you, if you would be, again, a CEO, Oscar, I'm sure you would be extremely interested in making sure that your supply chains function smoothly, that you can have perfect traceability of your products, either in terms of inputs from your suppliers or the way in which your distribution system works. So there's no problem with the products being lost or products ending in the wrong shelf in the wrong supermarket. So how do companies ensure this traceability and their supply chain management? Well, nowadays they all use barcodes. Look at any product you buy today, you will find a barcode on that product. 
And the good news is that these barcodes nowadays are standardized internationally. There is one thing called GTIN, Global Trade Identification Number, and this is based on an international standard that allows for a barcode to be unique to a product. The barcodes are actually the property of the producer of that product. And this, in my view, and that's what I argue in that Trade Policy 2.0 paper, could actually bring us closer to reality. And we may even think of replacing or supplanting, maybe we can complement the current codes we use for trade policy making, which are not barcodes, these are harmonized system codes. You, Oscar, know very well what I'm talking about. All these customs codes that are necessary for products to cross border, they can be six digits, they can be a few more digits if you go deeper. But the idea is that with such codes, in reality, we're behind the curve. With one single HS code, you can probably cover half of a shelf, if not an entire shelf in your local pharmacy. But if we want supply chains, and if we take an example now, which is very relevant for COVID, if we want supply chain monitoring to prevent disruptions and to keep track of critical supplies, it's very difficult to do it on the basis of HS codes, because HS codes will not give you the active ingredients, they will not give you the exact formula for that drug that you need or the kind of product that is really, really important nowadays, it gives you a huge range of generic products. So it could be enriched in sense because companies are already adapting to that. They are using these codes. What prevents us policymakers to embrace the same codes that companies have put in place and that will generate no cost for them, it will generate only benefits for trade policymakers. And that can be combined with RFID sensors. Every container nowadays can be geolocalized with these very cheap sensors that then with IoT, they allow traceability. You know exactly from which farm, from which producer, that very product that you hold in your hand comes from. So that has all kinds of benefits for consumers, for product safety, for conformity, anything. So if we could put together as trade policymaker, all the technologies that our companies are already using, as I said, sensors, barcodes, uh, IoT, all these 5G enabled technologies, we could probably really do a much better job in facilitating global supply chain. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the, we'll go later in the conversation, but one of the things that could really help uh, to provide the, the right information, the right evidence for the discussions about vulnerability or, or dependency on supply chains. So I think this is a great avenue. And if firms use it, why not government? Let's move to the next question. So new technologies, as you said, affect what we trade, with whom we trade, and how we trade. And digital technologies, for instance, not only lower trade costs, but also increase the, the importance of trading services. And these changes are likely to put a premium on human capital and maybe also change the comparative advantage of countries as geography becomes less important. So my question is, are these developments good for Europe? Is the EU likely to be at, at an advantage or at a disadvantage? Yeah, well, that, that's a very, very good question to which I would, well, I think my unambiguous answer is uh, yes, potentially. So it's another way of saying that the economists tend to say, yes, well, it depends. Now I'm saying unambiguously, yes, potentially. So there is a bit of it depends in my answer. I think it very much depends on the way in which trade policy creates synergies with other, I would say, elements that would shape comparative advantage in the future. 
and let's let's take for instance digital technologies right so it's no secret that the eu is no longer the global leader in some of these technologies and that's a fact of life it cannot be a leader in everything forever i mean look no further than the euro football championship portugal won the title but now they're out france is the world champion but they're also out so it's a very competitive world out there and you just need to make sure that you make the most of the latest technologies, no matter who develops them. So I think most importantly, apart from developing new technologies, you should also enable companies to adopt technologies. You can, you can foster the adoption of technologies. And here, I think very important is to ensure that SMEs adopt such digital technologies. You also need to ensure that there is fair competition. It's no secret that some of these new technologies may lead to anti-competitive practices or to excessive concentration, which in itself is not necessarily bad, but may lead to abuse of dominant position. And trade alone is not able to fix such practices, especially in digital areas. Uh, even in traditional goods where we have trade defense instruments or anti-dumping or anti-subsidies, distortions, significant distortions uh, still persist. We don't have anti-dumping in services. We don't have disciplines on subsidies for services that are watertight. I mean, there are some loopholes in the system. But I, I do believe that the EU has the ingredients to remain competitive. I, the, the last paper I authored as chief economist, we looked at the competitiveness of uh, European exporting SMEs. And we had this digital intensity indicator. Um, many of our SMEs, they were not doing bad when it comes to digital intensity. So. The question is, how can EU firms compete and or cooperate in global markets with high-tech unicorns? Because we have SMEs and other countries, they have unicorns. So I think this is a very important question. I'm not sure I have the answer to today, but I'm pretty sure this is an important question. Absolutely. So technology, the technology that we've been discussing till now, it's been fundamental to help us cope with, with the pandemic, for instance. So not just because we can work series online, but also because we can work and because we can buy from home. We can do online payments. We can do many activities. Not that long ago, required people to move. So you mentioned about the SMEs and digitalization. But if, you know, if the pandemic is a win of the situation, the digitalization process that has been underwent for the last two years, if that's a window to the future of trade, my question is, do you think, are we going to see an explosion in digital trade? Well, on this one, I have a, a much more um, clear answer. I think, uh, unlike the previous question here, the short answer is definitely yes, in my view, with no caveats. I'm pretty convinced that when we get the post-COVID trade statistics, we, see, we will see a larger share of digital trade, what we call mode one services in total global trade. And as I argued in the ESIP paper you mentioned, Oscar, um, most likely the share of mode one services will increase considerably because of two important reasons, both in absolute but also in relative terms. So on the one hand, digital services were the only services that could function in a world where we had lockdowns and major restrictions for face-to-face -face transactions. And, and many services, they depend on these face-to-face transactions, either in the, the so-called mode two or mode four. So mode one became a substitute for many of these other services. So in, in that sense, it increased uh, both in uh, absolute, but also in relative terms. Now, 
there's also a second reason that maybe uh, over time, or at least in the next few years, the share of mod one will increase. Uh, I'm not sure exactly about all the reasons why this is so, but if you look at the trends in FDI, which is the major driver for the other type of services trade, mode three, so it's FDI driven by having a commercial presence abroad. This has been on a very steep decline trend, even before COVID. And projections indicate that this is not going to recover anytime soon. So for the next few years, I think all the way until 2025, perhaps, we will see uh, from all these factors, a significant increase in this digital trade. So I, I really can't wait to see the the latest statistics, either from Eurostat, from the WTO on this global trade services by mode of supply, where I expect mode one service to go probably up to a quarter of global trade, if not more. And then, you know, the, the question kind of moves from the realities of trade to, to what is trade policy doing about it. And, and recently, we hosted an event with Stephanie Honey on digital trade policy in the Asia-Pacific region. I recommend everyone to watch the webinar in, in the Eastside website. And among other things, Stephanie talked about the digital economic partnership agreement between Chile, New Zealand, and Singapore that was signed to create new opportunities for digital trade. So my question is, if digital is important and will be more important in the future, what is the EU doing to promote digital trade uh, so EU companies can be successful and EU consumers can access uh, new products from abroad? Yes, no, that, that's a very good reference to an area and a, a region that is in the forefront of interesting uh, developments. We are keen observers of such new trade initiatives launched by, other, uh, by our trading partners, in, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region. And as I said, we're happy to borrow great ideas from those who will test them first. But I think we do more than just observing others. We're actively pursuing, just to give a couple of examples, we're actively pursuing our own agenda in the WTO in promoting e-commerce, which is very ambitious agreement that goes beyond what the name would indicate in narrow terms. It's not just about you buying stuff online. There are many other disciplines that we hope they will see the light of the day very soon because this will allow the WTO and trade to be in sync with those business realities that we, we've discussed so far. Very good. Looking forward to, to, to know about this upcoming initiative. So you mentioned unicorns. So here is my question about unicorns. So some, some technological firms are, are very large or they, or they have few employees. Some are unicorns, as you mentioned, which are startups with a value of over a billion dollars. Others, let's say, have more humbler valuations. In the EU, as you mentioned, we don't have we don't have many unicorns, but you mentioned that we have plenty of very good SMEs. So my question is, what's the relationship between SMEs and unicorns? And from the policy point of view, what can EU trade policy do to support EU SMEs in a world that is uh, increasingly dominated by large firms and unicorns? Well, again, maybe I should start by simply saying that it's very difficult for any single policy intervention to create unicorns. So let's, let's get that out of the way immediately. There's, in my view, not the role of any policy, but in particular trade policy, to aim at creating unicorns. That's not how I think these things work in a market economy. 
But it is true, and I think this is a bit startling, in fact. It is true that when it comes to unicorns, and I think they they are an indicator of, of some important phenomenon in terms of entrepreneurship and the dynamism of an economy, if you have so many thriving companies reaching this one billion and beyond type of market capitalization, this is quite impressive. And it's startling that they use far behind the US, they use also far behind China, and even behind India. And, and when you look at our economic weight and all the ideas and the skills and economic opportunities that we have as individuals in Europe, you start wondering uh, why don't we have many of these garage startup ideas becoming valuable companies conquering the world or just the domestic market since many unicorns, they become unicorns by simply to a large extent you know, serving the local market. Not all of them are global companies, but anyway, they're very successful companies. So I'm not sure exactly, really, I don't know what trade policy can do in order to change the equation. But I, I think there is one thing we can do for sure for SMEs. The most important benefit we can offer to SMEs is to reduce the most important barriers facing their expansion in foreign markets. And in nowadays, tariffs are really, except a few markets or sectors, they're not the most important barrier. I think if we take, uh, for instance, our own tariffs, if we take into account all the FTAs we have, the um, weighted average tariff on everything we import is 0.3% or so. But what really makes a huge uh, hurdle for SMEs is the regulatory divergence. Uh, your product needs to comply with, or your, your services needs to comply with lots of domestic regulation with all kinds of standards. And there can be differences in these standards. Or even when the standards are identical, there can be different ways of proving you comply with the standard, which are really not necessarily justified. So we can reduce these barriers by having this regulatory cooperation, as I mentioned, either as part of FTA, there will be probably structured cooperation with our FTA partners or otherwise outside FTAs. And apart from this, which is sometimes, as I said, this you have to be patient, you have to be yoga instructor to to last for 10 years or 20 years to finish an FTA negotiation. But then there are other ways in which you can achieve quicker results. And that's via your own unilateral initiatives. And I think there's no surprise that one of our unilateral initiatives, which was aimed at helping SMEs with the second most important barrier, which I think is their own ignorance, because that is, that's sadly still the case for SMEs. Some of the biggest barriers is their own lack of knowledge of what they need to comply with abroad. So our access to market, a business-friendly and SME-friendly portal has just been awarded the EU Ombudsman Award for the best administrative practice. Why? Because I do think that European SMEs found this tool invaluable in uh, understanding the maze of procedures that they need to comply with abroad. So there are many things you can do. Maybe they won't become unicorns, but they will become successful exporters. And that in itself is quite an achievement. Yeah, cheers for that and congratulations for the award colleagues in people busy trade. So this event is about trade and technology. And one of the technologies that is more often talked about is blockchain, mostly because blockchain is used in the process of generating cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You have written about blockchain on an insight blog. So my question is, uh, what can blockchain do for exporters, for importers and consumers? And what can uh, blockchain do for trade policymakers like yourself? And if you can give us some, some concrete examples. Yes. Well, thank you very much for mentioning that the blog, uh, Oscar, and for mentioning blockchain as a topic in particular. I think 
Indeed, I believe that blockchain is a technology that would offer great potential for global trade, probably far more than Mod5 services. And if that the reason why I think so is simply because at the, at the moment, we're still functioning on, I think, 19th century technologies when it comes to some of these international trade. I, I was listening to the latest trade talks from uh, Chad Bowne and Sumaya Keynes. They had the a talk about podcast about blockchain and if you listen to that you'll see that some of the, the the legal concepts that underpin international trade transactions they actually originate in common law written in the 19th century in 1882 or something like that so how can we actually get rid of this legacy of the past well blockchain can offer that potential because we can escape from paper nowadays Trade transactions are actually swamped in papers. You have to have lots of documents in paper with lots of stamps that you would have to carry along in order to prove different uh, aspects of your transaction. And as I mentioned in my blog, in reality, even though global supply chain and invoices are uh, settled in euros or in dollars, the really underlying currency of global supply chains is trust. And technology like blockchain, whose middle name, middle name is trust, would offer great potential to facilitate all these transactions. So it's all about creating documents that would easily travel across boundaries that people can recognize. They, they would be tamper, tamper-proof. Uh, they would reduce the need for all sorts of red tape and uh, certification. It will probably facilitate trade finance. It will facilitate custom formalities, conformity assessment, traceability. The number of applications, it's really uh, impressive. We just finalized a pilot blockchain project in Digitrade. We are going to publish this report very soon. And you will see in one part of this report, we will map all the possibilities for using blockchain in, in trade. It's absolutely mind-boggling. The, the, the potential is it's enormous. So if we could reduce some of these barriers, it, it will really boost trade to a great deal. So there are already examples, for instance, one that I really like because it's already the kind of public-private interaction uh, that it would be needed for trade policy applications on blockchain to operate. We have many blockchain solutions that are B2B from business to business, but blockchain to facilitate trade policy, you would need public agencies to buy in. So there is this concrete example called Cadena, which is, I think it's a, a shorthand for, for chain in Spanish. And it's a blockchain solution implemented by a few countries in Latin America. I think it's Costa Rica, Mexico, and Peru for authorized exporters. And authorized exporters is a very, very important concept that will streamline border facilities, including perhaps also rules of origin, depending on the scheme. Now, it, it, it is clear from this scheme, which is operating for real, it's not just a, a sort of concept, proof of concept. It's been used by real companies for real containers, for real transactions, that the cost of doing trade have decreased tremendously. So I think we have reached now a level of maturity for this technology that would give us now the confidence of public agencies that is high time for us to adopt it. Oh, that's, that's really exciting. And uh, yeah, for, for those of us uh, who uh, love technology and trade, uh, see that, that connection and that application, it's, it's really exciting. I have the, the, the podcast as uh, something to, to listen to this weekend. So I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to that podcast. Let's let's change uh, gear a little bit and move to the EU-US Trade and Technology Council. So, a bit of background. On the 15th of June, the EU and the US agree 
to set up a trade and technology council, which goals are, among other things, to, and I quote, seek common ground and strengthen global cooperation on technology, digital issues and supply chain, and to cooperate on compatible and international standard development. And the EU-US Trade and Technology Council will include working groups on, and I quote again, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, and other emerging technologies. So how this EU-US Trade and Technology Council fits in our conversation on trade and technology, what's the value added of this council, what's the council intended to do, and what it is not intended to do? These are, I understand very much the interest from our audience for this important initiative. I think there is absolutely no doubt that there will be a lot of the kind of things that we've been now exploring. They will also feature on the agenda of our transatlantic discussions on trade and technology. It goes without saying that these are topics that would be of major interest for us to make progress. It was indeed announced as an important priority, uh, both by the U.S. and the EU administrations. And really, how does it fit with our conversation today? Well, I can only express my personal views here, but I think it, it really fits like a glove. I mean, mostly about digital technologies, of course, but not only. We have artificial intelligence, cyber security, for instance, uh, security of supply chains. Many, many of the things where we have potential for cooperation, they would really lend themselves to a dialogue and hopefully soon thereafter to some concrete deliverables that would uh, bring, particularly for these emerging technologies, we hope that we'll have a more coherent regulatory approach across the Atlantic in order to facilitate trade, particularly for SMEs. Good, so to be, to be continued, I suppose. Yeah, well, we have no choice. The world is a tougher place, as I said, with multiple actors trying to assert uh, their technological capabilities. And unfortunately, sometimes technology becomes, or it's seen as a geopolitical asset. It becomes a very, yeah, a very difficult topic. But the good news between the EU and the US is that we traditionally share common values. Our transatlantic trade depends critically on not just SMEs, but also a lot of FDI and intra-firm trade between major companies who are still in a position to set international standards or to, you know, to kind of create this te technological diffusion. So we just want to make sure that they remain open and with all the principles that we attach so much value to them embedding in these new technologies. Great. So let's move to the next question. Is a little bit more academic. I put you on the spot now, so let's move to something a, a, little, a little bit more abstract. So some of these technologies that we have discussed will make it easier to work with people far away from us, probably leading to a further split of the value chain in good, but mostly, I suppose, in services, which could lead to more commerce, further specialization, and productivity gains. That kind of the usual kind of flow of how uh, trade theory goes. But all the technologies like automation, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, may lead to production and consumption being closer together and therefore resulting in, in less trade. So technology has the power to lead to more offshoring and more reshoring at the same time. So my question is, which force of the two do you think will be the strongest and why? Yeah, well, 
I wish I knew, Oscar. I, I think you clearly identified the differentiated impact of different new technologies on global trade flows. So indeed, some technologies would lead to what people call nearshoring. Others will allow for more fragmentation of current production processes. So maybe the best way to, even though partly or partially, at least to, to give a meaningful answer is to take a specific example. So take, for instance, 3D printing, a technology that has not yet made major inroads in macro terms. I mean, it's still a very minor share of uh, global trade, uh, these 3D printing capacities and products that are 3D printed, but they, they are actually growing at an exponential rate. In some sectors, 3D printing offers product features that are un we are unable to do them otherwise. So it's completely not just cost effective, now they, are, they offer superior product functionality. So they are poised to become for many products, especially specialized products, the predilect technology in some uh, some areas. So what would that mean? Well, I like to think for, about these sectors as prime example of how technology will redefine comparative advantages across the world. If we take a sector where 3D printing becomes the dominant mode of production, I think there are only three ways in which a country or a company can remain competitive in that sector dominated by the 3D printing technology. Either you are the best designer, for instance, here uh, I, I am the designer of this t-shirt. It's not really 3D printing, it's 2D printing, but you know, the design comes from one source. It's, so it's European made. The t-shirt comes from Bangladesh, an LDC. Uh, so we, we facilitate exports of some products from poor countries, but think of a, a world where it is not 2D printing, or we're not talking about these very basic Mod 5 services like printing a logo on a t-shirt. Think of a world where everything is boils down really just to three elements. Either you're the best designer of the 3D printing file, or you're the most competitive producers of the raw materials, which are going to be just inks. It could be ceramic inks, metallic inks, plastic. It's not just plastic. We can even print human organs nowadays. So it's a technology with massive applications around the world, but it boils down to three elements, design, inks, and the third one is the 3D printer itself. You can only, you know, you can be competitive in this supply chain if you produce 3D printers. All the complexity of nuts and bolts of all sorts of car parts or this multitude of intermediate trading intermediate products that really generate this huge value of international trade will just disappear. We only trade in three elements. One of them will be digital. The other ones will be very simple in a way. So commodities. We have many surprises in the near future from technology. So to keep with the theme of our talk, just like we have many surprises in the current Euro Championship where certain things were unexpected. <laughs> yeah, put that on the record. Uh, fortunately, yesterday's thing weren't and we classified to the quarterfinals. This is very good news. But, uh, you know, your point about in, in a world dominated by 3D printing and digital technologies, you know, the, the role of competitive advantage kind of is something we have talked to in this 45, 50 minutes. I mean, the, the importance of, of human capital, that kind of future uh, in order to, to have your competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis all the countries and how it's probably, uh, I mean, as I will be a European policymaker, I will be thinking it sounds like boring and traditional, but human capital, again, becomes really critical to, to be successful in, in the future. And it will be even more 
in a future dominated by by design, by trading ideas, by this this research, trading research. Okay, so the the final question from my side. So my question is, uh, it's a bit provocative. It's, it's not technology making trade policy obsolete. So let's say if I'm going to talk about hypotheticals here. If I need a graphic designer to prepare the layout of a paper or for a T-shirt like the one you have, you know, I can find that person online. I can place an advert in a website that advertises work for freelancers, and I I can pay that person with PayPal or even with cryptocurrency. I mean, I my point is that I can basically import something without any interaction or with trade policy or free trade agreement. So if that's the future, where does trade policy fit into that future? Yes, no, I think I'll have to to try hard to refute your compelling case. Uh, I think, but that's probably just a great example of how consumers like you and me or small businesses like the company who did this t-shirt benefit from a, a globalized trade where there is this almost in a digital world, I think there, there are very few barriers why you wouldn't be able to interact with, with someone in order to write a paper if you want or, you know, come up with a new patent. You can have one uh, fellow co-patented uh, kind of owner in India, the other one in Russia and the third one in Brazil, and you will be in Europe. Now, nothing prevents you from doing that. And that's the beauty of the world in which we live nowadays. But you might not realize that, but trade policy probably played a role in your example, Oscar, with you having the ability to... Uh, crowdsource or pay and make a graphic designer because we actually tried very hard to ensure that there is a moratorium on custom duties for electronic transmissions. So everything you mentioned would happen electronically, but uh, I think maybe it may sound difficult for us to, to conceive it, but it's technically not impossible for such transactions to be subject to tariffs. In fact, we tried very hard to ensure that at the WTO this moratorium on non-imposition of custom duties on electronic transmission is extended. I think it actually expired now in June, if I'm not wrong. But the good news is that we have introduced this commitment, which will not expire in, in all RFTAs or in most of RFTAs. Many other countries did the same. So this is an example that we can still be relevant if we focus on those elements that can actually stifle the technological progress. And as I said, for me, what really is important is for trade policy not to interfere with each commercial transaction. In fact, trade policy should try to facilitate such transactions and only put in place rules that are needed to, as I said, to protect certain societal goals like privacy or anti-competitive practices or ensuring that there is no unfair subsidization, those sort of things. And I think beyond this example, the, the really what drives my, my passion for trade and technology as a topic is actually the potential that technology has in order to allow us trade policymakers to do a better job, to make trade policy more effective. And this is where I see far greater potential in the sense, because otherwise we really can't have a lot of impact on technology. Technology, it's a fascinating war of its own. It has its own rules. It's very dynamic. We can't pretend that we can shape that to a large extent. But sometimes we can. I mean, take, for instance, robots. It's very important and only natural for some industrial robots to be highly uh, regulated across countries simply because they can be lethal. Robots are very powerful and pretty smart objects, but 
sometimes powerful and smart can become, you know, if there is a run and error or if it's a human error, the interaction between a, a robot and a human, it can be a serious injury. So robots are subject to certification, to testing, to conformity assessment. If these standards that we are going to test uh, on robots are different across countries, you can imagine that then trade policy becomes a barrier for trading robots. I mean, I think trading robots probably uh, an important element. Uh, there are probably side effects in terms of jobs, but all in all, I think it's something you can't really be against. So what we can do is to make sure that everyone applies international standards and that international standards are actually up to the task in order to make sure that robots are safe piece of machinery. Good answer. I mean, I, I, was, not, I was not trying to make it redundant or to kind of replace Digitrade by, by a large computer with blockchain. No, that was not my intention at all. So just one, one question from the audience before we close. So we have one question from the audience asking you about something you mentioned at the beginning regarding this continuum of trade goods and services and that, that distinction that the trade policymakers do, but you know, firms and businesses don't, don't do that anymore or to the same extent. So basically the question is whether the GATS and the, the GATS and the GATS deserve modernization. Should they be merged? Should they be replaced? What's your take on it? Yeah, well, that, that's a, a very big question for a last minute sort of short answer from my side. I think what I try to argue in, in some of my academic writings was that I don't think we should replace the existing rules. They were there for a reason and to a very large extent, to an you know, overwhelming extent. I think they are still fit for purpose. There are nonetheless certain elements and they are becoming more and more important where there are missing gaps. In fact, it's not the rules per se that are wrong, it's the missing links between the rules. So therefore we may need bridges between GATS and GATS and GATS and TRIPS and so on and so forth. So try to modernize these rules, but not necessarily through grand scale, grand bargain, sort of single undertaking, the kind of uh, rounds that will take decades. Very often this kind of minor adjustment of the rules can happen in committee work at the WTO or through um, minor amendments. Um, it, we, we've seen such things in the past and they were significant. I mean, this harmonized system, the codes that we all use as custom officials, I mean, they are usually constantly adopted to reflect new technologies. Try to find in the harmonized system, the word typewriter. You will no longer find the word typewriter. There is no code, I think, anymore for typewriters. Why? Because we don't produce typewriters anymore. We updated those rules in order to reflect new technologies. The same could apply on many other fronts. So it could be this evolution rather than revolution. Fantastic. So, Lucien, thank you very much for this conversation and for enlightening us on the topic of trade and technology. It's, it's been a, a great learning experience. And and thanks for helping us understand how trade policy fits into, into that trade and technology dichotomy. This is, is an ever-evolving discussion, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to continue talking about it. So thank you so much, and thanks to all of you who have been with us during this hour. Thanks for joining us, and have a, a nice afternoon.